Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being here. There are two ways, one to life and one to death. But the difference between the two ways is great. Now, I've just revealed that I have not evolved beyond binary thinking. Uh, I'm actually quoting here from the Didache, one of the earliest pieces of Christian literature outside of the New Testament. But this binary choice between life and death didn't start with the Didache. It starts in the Garden of Eden. The choice between life and death is the engine that drives the entire story of human history. As I said, it's there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve made the wrong choice. It's there in the days of Cain and Abel, when each had to choose between the right way of worship or wrong way of worship. It's there with Joshua in chapter 24, saying, Choose this day whom you will serve. And the binary choice is there with King David when Bathsheba catches his eye. It's there in Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And it's there in Jesus' teaching repeatedly. Will you build your house on sand or on the rock? And when we talk about imitating Christ or conforming our lives to him, we mean we want to be like Jesus, who always chooses God above created things. He chooses life. And for those who follow him, he promises abundant life, even eternal life. Catholic Radio exists to help men and women choose life and resist the forces of sin, death, and unbelief, which are perpetually on display through our 24-hour cable news networks and other platforms. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The words of Jesus recorded by Matthew in chapter 24 of his gospel. This passage has always intrigued and actually scared me. How could they not have known? The coming flood was no secret. Noah is called a herald or a preacher of righteousness. He's not only broadcasting his message, but that ark is sitting in his backyard. I mean, that's got to be some object lesson. It had to be a conversation starter. Nobody else in the neighborhood had one. But people remained so clueless that they were surprised when the flood came. How could they not have known? Well, let's take a quick peek at the culture of Noah's day, as illustrated by many biblical scholars. After Cain killed Abel, he went on the lamb, founded a city, and generated an ungodly line of descendants, whose scripture pits against the godly line of Seth and his sons. Cain's sensually attractive daughters caught the attention of Seth's sons. And just as Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good to the eye and seized it, so Seth's sons saw that the forbidden daughters of Cain were good to the eye, and they paired off with as many as they wished. Sensual attractiveness, of course, is not a good foundation for marriage. If physical beauty was the basis for a good marriage, then Hollywood would have no divorces. But these illicit unions led to fractured families. And fractured families lead to confusion about parentage. You know, who's my daddy? Uh, leads to confusion about property and custody. And family breakup leads to social chaos and criminality. As society becomes more and more disordered, there's a cry that goes out for strong, strongman autocratic leadership. And Scripture, in fact, describes a league of tyrants known as giants, 
who were, and by the way, there's lots of question about that word among Old Testament scholars, but they were at least giants in brutality. Um, They're even called renowned, which probably means that they had exploits that generated a popular culture of myth and poetry and songs and folk tales. And of course, they became heroes then to the next generation. What was the result? Genesis 6-5. Every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. End quote. Terrible diagnosis. People were spiritually deformed. They lost their sense of the sacred. Only this world mattered. Nothing above, nothing beyond. And of course, when human beings become just another moving, eating, drinking, copulating organism, when a sense of God is lost and humans are no longer regarded as his image, human life becomes cheap and expendable. And when people trash God's image, they are executing God in effigy. People prefer death to life, and that's how it was in the days of Noah. And in fact, it sounds rather familiar. The great Jewish novelist Saul Bellow shared a sense of the sacred uh, with uh, Catholics and other Christians. Everything in modern times, he says, is done brutally and in haste and processed quickly. We are divested of the deeper human meaning that has traditionally been attached to human life. There is no sacred space around human beings anymore. It's not necessary to approach them with the tentativeness and respect that civilization has always accorded them. People are now out there in the open. They're fair game. Our humanity is at risk. It's too powerful a thing to just lie down and give up the ghost. But the feeling that life is sacred has died away in this century. Of course, we know that abortion contributes to this desecration of life, the push for physician-assisted suicide. Uh, We've got so many ways in which human beings are dehumanized in our own generation. But we go back to Noah's day. How could they not have known? They didn't know because they didn't want to know. They were busy. They preferred to be busy. And it's easy to forget that your choices between life and death are consequential when, in fact, you're driven to distraction. And your days are busy. Remember, the flood came not because they were leading humdrum lives, uh, you know, giving and taking in marriage, buying and selling, eating and drinking. That's not why judgment came on them. Judgment came on Noah's Noah's generation because the culture was wickedly disordered, violent, debauched, and evil. Noah's neighbors, neighbors were swept away in the flood not because they were busy, but because they had grown acclimated to the evil all around them. They were a fabric with it. Their lives, their values, their assumptions all fit in nicely with the culture. Their souls were so covered over with scar tissue that they found it easy to ignore the bloodshed, the corruption, and the godlessness all around them. They just stayed in their lane, waiting for the weekend, checking their social calendars and the price of pork belly futures and planning the next gala wedding. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to look too closely. They didn't want to be unsettled. And so the word of God was ignored in the days of Noah. That's because the word of God always brings clarity to the choices we face. It is distressing to see how often people ignore God's overtures. When I was younger, I often got very discouraged and wondered why uh, I, I should be spending my life sharing a message that so few people seem to value. Then it dawned on me, I was actually in good company. That's the way it was in the days of Noah. 
and in the days of Moses, and in the days of Samuel, the days of Isaiah, and Jesus, and St. Paul, and St. Augustine, and St. Francis, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Francis de Sales, St. John Paul II, and St. Mother Teresa. And so it is in our own day. People generally don't listen. Hey, we've lived in the era of the two most listened-to evangelists in the history of Christianity. They were both warm friends, in fact, Billy Graham and John Paul II. When John Paul II died, Billy Graham said he was the most influential messenger of the gospel in the last hundred years. But John Paul II wasn't discouraged. In his encyclical, Mission of the Redeemer, he writes, The mission of Christ the Redeemer, which is entrusted to the church, is still very far from completion. As the second millennium after Christ's coming draws to an end, an overall view of the human race shows that this this mission is still only beginning and that we must commit ourselves wholeheartedly to its service. It's the Spirit who impels us to proclaim the great works of God. Quote St. Paul then, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. End quote. So, if these great evangelists of the faith, these ministers of the word, these great teachers, if they thought that their personalities or their wit or their special insight were the key elements in the success or failure of their preaching, they might have gotten discouraged because time and again, they were rejected. But they knew that ultimately it wasn't about them. It was about the message. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a critic and judge of the human heart. The Word of God creates a crisis of conscience in people. It shines the light of God onto a person's life, and people often resist seeing themselves in that light. Because when the light comes, they see the choices they face. Day in and day out, all human beings are given the choice to choose life, to walk in the light, to obey the Word of God, to either be drawn closer to God or sliding away from Him. And the job of all of us in Catholic media, and really all of us who bear the name of Christ, is to just show up every day and serve, teach, preach, explain, explicate, expound the faith to the best of our abilities and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let the Spirit of God do the work of conversion. You know, if we don't try to claim credit for our victories of conversion— then we won't have any. <laughs> then we won't mind. Then we won't have to take the blame when our words fall on hard soil. It's often important for us to keep in mind that the task before us is no easier than it was in the days of Noah, or in the days of Moses, or in the days of Isaiah, or in the days of Paul, or in the days of uh, Saint Catherine of Siena. You know, you can go down the list, and what do you find out? The story of those who share the Word of God with their fellow creatures is a story of most commonly rejection. Even Jesus makes this point when he's uh, incarnate in first century Palestine. He, he tells the religious authorities at that time, look, your whole history is a history of killing the prophets, rejecting them. Jeremiah knows this as well as anybody. He's, he's really the lamenting uh, prophet. But it's common for those who bear the word of God to 
experience rejection or exclusion, to be marginalized in some way. And again, it's not personal. It's not because you don't have enough wit or you don't have enough ability to articulate or because you haven't studied more or because you're not a perfect person. The problem is the Word of God is alive and powerful, and when people encounter it, it shines a light in their soul. And that means they have to stop buying and selling, eating and drinking, giving and taking in marriage, and give heed to what God is saying to them, and then choose a way of life or a way of death. I'm Al Cresta. 